Hello and welcome to the Performance Project Podcast. I'm Ken Walker, a surgeon and educator in Inverness, and with me is Stephen Yule, an academic psychologist in Edinburgh and Boston. Well, this week we welcome Dr. Ian Whiteley, who is a space psychologist and director of UCL's Centre for Space Medicine and a researcher with ESA, the European Space Agency, and who's previously designed training for astronauts. Yeah, it's a great pleasure, Ian, to have you with us. And um, I should explain to the listeners that we've met before because of uh, a really interesting project that you that you brought to us in our group, the iView Expert Project. Maybe we can talk about that later. And um, um, and the listeners might uh, know you, Ia, as a psychologist on the BBC Two series Astronauts. Do you have what it takes? Um, uh, so it's great to have you with us, Ia. Thank you, Ken and Stephen. Much appreciate, and um, I definitely have a great interest in people working in a safety critical environments like uh, yourselves, surgeons. Well. Yeah, I was wondering if you could first of all give us an idea of um, how you came to be a space psychologist and what a space psychologist does. Um, so the British psychologists have run a paper on that, uh, well, maybe now 10 years ago. In principle, I was always interested to become an astronaut and become a um, jet pilot. Wow. So I was trying to approach that in the best way I could. And I was fascinated by how do people find resources in this time pressured, potentially dangerous environment, and they know exactly what to do in a split second or a split moment. Uh And how do they collaborate together in that environment? So you have to have, this inner knowing that you will all work together and you also have to do your absolute best in that environment because it's not your life, it's everyone's life in that environment. And as a result, I have um, well myself learned how to fly, done skydiving, won some skydiving competitions, learned scuba diving, rescue diving, And as part of my PhD, I went and learned how to fly um, Airbus 320 and Boeing 777 as part of the airline conversion course. So I haven't flown the aircraft, but I've done everything that the pilots do to convert to those aircrafts to fly. And that was vital for me because I wanted to understand what are they thinking because part of my PhD was to design interface to support more, um, well, faster for one, but also more intuitive, resonant with how they process information from their environment. And um, that was the closest what you can do to space, because um, a lot of pilots do become astronauts. And it's kind of the established route. You, of course, can be a medical doctor as well. And that led me to then applying for European Space Agency grants and looking to how do we map out psychological and 
social type of issues that the crew will have in long duration missions to the moon and Mars. So this was the first study in the UK past um, Margaret Thatcher's uh, cancelling the human spaceflight participation for the UK. And from there on, we passed that study. We've mapped out the type of scenarios the crew are likely to go through in living and working in um, on Mars or in the moon or in fact on spacecraft as they're traveling. And that uh, been fundamental for the UK to establishing our human spaceflight direction in psychology. And we have a good society now of uh, life scientists working in human spaceflight. We just published um, a white paper just done by experts to indicate the direction and expertise we have in the UK. And it's openly available under UK Space Labs, which is run by volunteers. So if you're interested, you can have a look. And um, wow. <laughs> yes, and I'm just, in principle, what I, what I always wanted to do is to be in people's head <laughs> uh -huh. and see how they are thinking in that extreme environment you know how how do they how do they make it how do they make it right every time and you're interested in being in their head and also in that interface with the environment i mean i think that's going to resonate with our surgical audiences who, who often have to work in quite clunky environments uh, yes so part of um what we have done with you ken and your team is um, iView Expert, which was part of my also PhD, looking at how people process information in order then to in externalize these into either training or design principles of an interface. And if I say to people, you know, I can read experts' thoughts <laughs> in a way, um, it's of course with permission of that person and we're doing this together to uncover how to improve their performance. Yeah. And you were very kind when you came to Inverness a couple of times and you brought us that technique of high view expert. Um, we, we need to give a shout out to our research fellows, Vivian Blackhall and Ali Amin, who undertook that work uh, with us. And it, it was really interesting for us, this, idea of covert expertise that um, you'd found in astronaut training that some of the most expert people in a task were so automated that they weren't necessarily the best at explaining or externalizing, but that you had ways of getting at that expertise and uncovering it without interrupting their performance at the time, but doing it afterwards with a, a video cued recall and debrief uh, technique. Do you want to explain what was the key to that? So the idea is that we are uncovering unconscious expertise. So it's the expertise experts often have without realizing that only know, only they know about this. So the experts, the reason they become experts is because they're doing what they're, what they're really good at intuitively, what it seems like from the outside. But as soon as these people start to teach as an expert, they go back to how they've been taught. And this is quite common. 
And um, they also, when the listener, when you're asking them, how do you do it? They look at you and then give you the brief, what they think you may need to hear. And these filters prevent them from really sharing what they know. And the expert really know (laughs) what they're doing only when they're performing the task. It's called pre-verbal knowledge. So this is something they don't even realize they do intuitively and really well, or they assume that other people do or think the same way. And this is what the technique extracts without the judge, if you wish, or the filter in between them thinking, oh, that's what you need to know, or this is how we've been taught to teach others. And, um, and when I did this with the European Space Agency, three astronauts, on decision-making and problem-solving for long-duration missions, we have looked, um, what was interesting is all of them were trained in three different environments. So the Russian kind of Soyuz spacecraft uh, shuttle and a Mir station even, and of course they all um, have flown on ISS. And these, they were they all had a different approach to resolving a problem partly because of course they're all individuals you know they have their own educational background and cultural background being in Europe but their training influenced on where they start and what they consider and what they don't consider and you would think you know we all in a way all astronauts train the same way you could you could say that (laughs) But uh, it is not true because there is always your inner cultural, professional dyslexic. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because some people, yeah. uh, we're all on spectrum of, of some sort of um, um, condition. It's just a spectrum. And some people are much better at processing visual information and other people are better at audio and some can cross over and make the links that other people can't. And there was something very special about the, using the head camera footage to cue the recall after the event. It, it wasn't like surgeons are used to doing, creating a commentary for a demonstration video. It was about having all the details from your own point of view, all the auditory and visual cues, even the head movements, to take you right back as if you're there again. And then, and then the, uh, so and then the expert being debriefed could could really express exactly what they were thinking uh, during that replay without having to do it at the time of the performance. The idea is to allow the person to immerse back into where they were when they were making those decisions, but mostly when they were in the flow in their workflow. Yeah. So the more sensors are absorbed in that. And the less external view there is, which usually if people see themselves, they expect they suddenly have a perspective of other people looking at them as well. And hence they start analyzing what am I, what are they looking for? What should I be doing that will fit into that environment when these people are present? So people change their behavior, they change their thinking, and it's also floods the original thought process. So the reason for iView Expert was useful is because the retrospective interview um, 
although people might have a very good memory, they will actually not be thinking about what has happened, but they will be cued by questions from the interviewer rather than cued by what was happening with them. I see. And as an interviewer is not in their head, they cannot ask questions. And then it becomes limited by the questions the interviewer has. Yeah. So that was just really fascinating and useful. We're, we're um, useful to us, particularly in our uh, endoscopy unit. So thanks. Uh, and it was great fun collaborating on that. Uh, uh, Steve, you, um, you're just back from eight years in Harvard and you were collaborating with NASA too. What is it about you, uh, industrial psychologists, that you're so fascinated with astronauts in particular? <laughs> well, I don't think it's just psychologists who are fascinated. I think we we all are. It really catches the imagination about what's possible. Um, you know, one of the things, though, specifically that we were really focused on teams in resource-constrained environments. So a little similar to what you mentioned here about resource level and we've actually done some work as you know in Rwanda and still do in terms of non-technical skills and training for surgeons and surgical teams in Rwanda and we, we discovered in that work that actually the resource level and managing the resources actually changed some of the behaviors and team behaviors that were required so there was much more flexibility and there were different roles from high resource context and we developed a whole taxonomy and training program for that environment and you know the, the space context is really interesting because um that is a fixed low resource um setting and so resource level and team behavior suddenly become these two really interesting variables that we are, could study to try and develop countermeasures to help teams perform and achieve their best potential the medical events though is interesting in space because it's quite different from a medical team in a hospital where you have a team of experts only maybe one or two of those have any physician level training and so how do you how do you deal with medical events in that context and we're currently looking at autonomy and they're thinking about long duration exploration missions to to mars for example that the teams with time delay might have to autonomously deal with with technical and and medical events as they arise and so our current work is on looking at autonomy in those events that, that's really interesting because when I, when I was listening to you both talking, you know, and you think about astronauts, you can you can you can readily think of the parallels with surgeons, you know, working in um, you know very specialised and high tech environments. But my mind was also taken to when I used to work in a a mission hospital in Western Nepal, and and we had limited resources and a small team and a wide range of problems that might arise, and you had to work work the problem work the best solution using often using remote comms i resonate very much with uh, for example working in rwanda or in nepal in small teams with limited resources and how people understanding that that affects their performance or how they make decisions i could kind of in my mind's eye see in Rwanda, how people, because they will have to, well, the resources are scarce and you cannot can't use that. And you're thinking several times, should I use that resource? Because maybe somebody else with more critical condition might require this 
and um, then you 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 just you take a different route, and that's exactly what we've been doing, uh, and in uh, for, in problem solving for long duration missions. So the whole idea was that you have a limited resource available, and you don't know the problems that will come up. These were kind of the starting conditions, and I think Nepal as being a remote area and probably mountainous as well, where you can't get a rescue, uh, as well as, you know, needing to lead the team and for them to be comfortable to work in those conditions. And what I find is that humans are very adaptable. And I spoke, we had a workshop with, um, where we invited professionals that have already experienced working in a similar conditions that would be like, for example, on Mars or moon or on the journey. And we had an Antarctic commander and he said that they had a fatality due to helicopter crash. And the people from the mainland, from Europe was were trying to support them thinking that the team is completely destroyed their spirit in this accident that they have no resources on how to deal it with it and they were continuously providing them with psychological support and guidance but the feedback from the antarctic explorers was is that you are not here. You do not understand what we need. We are okay. This is the reality. We are dealing with it. When we need your help, we'll call. And it's almost like having that mindset that you are not there as an external you know, support provision, like mission control, for example. Mm-hmm. And people if you take people as fully resourceful and able to cope with whatever presents itself, which is true in our everyday life, more or less, right? Um, So there is a general perception that whatever life throws at you, you are able to deal with it. Yeah. And yeah. I remember you saying that it was, when we were doing IVU, it's, it's often about when we don't follow the rules that's the kind of expertise you want to get at. Yes, correct. And it's sort of almost not about whether the person follows the rules or not. It's about them finding the path that flows better for them. And they could get to that decision quicker. They could be inventive about that resolving or addressing. They can consider more paths that's ever been written in procedures like they could be inventively using the resources that they are available in the ways that they were not designed to be used. So it's like, you know, using um, yeah. a, a pen in many ways that you could use, you know, yeah. and if you give it to a child, you know, they will use it that in the ways that you haven't imagined either. <laughs> so it's, it's about converting resources and that's what the expert does. They convert the available information and, resources into a novel pathway and if that works they adapt that again and then it's always like it becomes a weaved new type of weaved thread that they think it existed there all the time 
um, but nobody else apart from them know of existence of new way of threading this problem, if you wish. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they just think, well, I think that's right. And they go and do it. And then once they've done it, they don't give a second thought when they do it following times. And that's how, from my point of view, the expertise seemed to be formed. And, um, and then when they start to teach, they go back into institutional mind frame because there are procedures to follow and they're not teaching their expertise. And you need to teach both, of course. Yes. I think this is fascinating. Yeah. And it makes me think of surgery and how decision-making is surgery moving from rule-based or more analytical and classical type and decision-making to more recognition, prime decision-making, or even creative. And a lot of surgeons, although they're very innovative, as you know, they say that when they get to doing creative decision-making in the operating theatre, that that's usually not a very good place to be because it means that you now, there's no experience or, or previous, um, previous, um, expertise to to work from and often that can result in very variable performance and I, and I wonder if which is fascinating I wonder if you could characterize the the similarities in performance culture between surgeons and astronauts something you touched on just now uh, about this unexpected outcome because they're changing the performance and um, so in the procedure in the ones that I kind of watched, you know, that Ken um, and his team were looking at, is that you're looking at the surgical field and the expert picks up on cues that are not written in a procedure. They pick it up because they have seen that before. They have never registered that they have seen that before, but it looks similar and it worked before. So that might be that they do a crossover from a different type of task that they did, but the intuition, or in a way, this is, I'm talking about professional intuition. So it's not about them diverting and creating new kind of diverting the procedure. It's about recognizing cues because they, mm, they might present themselves differently. And like, for example, I give you, there is, a, there is a study done with surgeons in Boston or Boston University. I will come back to that with you, to you, Ken, maybe with a reference that when surgeons go to art exhibitions regularly, they have better performance in the surgery, in the, in the theater. And what that speaks about is about observational skills it that because art is kind of i wouldn't say it's unpredictable but your observation is focused on detail that you normally don't do in your everyday life and you do look at your workplace you know when you're working it is also you know an art of nature right and there are different hues, shadows, intensity, um, texture. And, and so there's different hues and texity, um, texture and different type of uh, 
the way the situation is developing and you kind of see the flow and what would work and what doesn't. And I found that fascinating that observing art and being involved in art makes you a better performer. What do you think about that? I like it. And I remember, I remember this work. There's actually a whole course. I think it's even in internal medicine at Harvard where they would go to the museum of fine arts and, and do this. And it's actually, I think it's good. It's about reflection. It's about being able to point out details. And I wondered actually if that could be some way of training situation awareness and being able to like actively gather information. We, the, the same thing actually is about auditory as well. You talk about, about visual, but listening skills, being able to actually actively listen and not wait for your turn to speak in the conversation or not be looking or spending a lot of your cognitive effort on internal processes. And I wonder if, if like professionals get better at these skills, they free up cognitive effort um, become more automatic they'll be able to spot those cues early um, as a function of their expertise but can we deliberately train professionals to to do that and to enhance their cognitive abilities or does it just come with experience and with doing doing the job and being in the trenches yeah um, I just want to go to Ken at this point because Ken is a musician as well right Ken what do you play yeah, I I play the fiddle and and um, you know I like to accompany more than lead you know and do the the fillion bits kind of less is more you know um, there's a, I have a friend who's a singer songwriter and I like accompanying and that involves a lot of listening I guess I hadn't thought about it that way um, and. Uh, and I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm married an artist. I hadn't thought of these as being, um, I suppose I thought about playing the fiddle as being relevant to surgery, but uh, you could think that there could be all sorts of tasks for different people that would enhance their scanning skills, their, um, and their thought patterns that assist situation awareness. Because this is, this is relevant not just to what you've said about knowing when something looks right from another, or, or picking, but it's also picking up when something's not quite right, isn't it? Your yes. something, your something's not quite right. Test depends on these skills, and it's not. Just, you know, we, we we talk a lot about the non-technical skills for surgeons masterclass that Steve designed. You know about um, enhancing your not your situation awareness by having your technical skills sorted, so you don't have to worry about them. Put a lot of emphasis on that in training. Uh, we talk about using scanning techniques and stopping and taking 10 for 10, but we don't talk about a lot of the things outside surgery, do we? And it could be um, how you behave when you're riding a bike it, it, and it could be uh, what you do when you go to an art gallery. I hadn't really, really appreciated that. Well, this is where this aspect of surgeons and astronauts have a lot in common. <laughs> right. And, um, uh, a lot of astronauts do play musical instruments and they, a lot of them, well, majority of them have several hobbies that they pursue. Some of them are to do with survival uh, in extreme environments. And I think that's also true for a lot of medical professionals that they do that too. They do uh, have, well, those that I've met 
have um, interest in exploration. And I think what you're saying, uh, what Steve is teaching in surgical training and for performance enhancement and about learning how to be attentive, that certainly does come, just as Steve said, in order, auditory and visual and also tactile. I would imagine that plays a big part in what you do. It does. Um, so there is this cues that none of the, well, the majority of the humanity doesn't experience. <laughs> like perhaps the artists do have a tactile perception that is quite attuned. But surgeons would have this even greater. Astronauts would probably use this as they, for example, repair or interact with their equipment and spacesuit, so such as the divers would, for example. But of course, the surgeons would be attuned, like you were talking about playing a fiddle and like to play that in a group where you are listening to others and, and cueing your input by their behavior. This is exactly what surgery is in my mind where you're working and intuitively all of you are playing the same tune or drawing the same art or working on the same artwork where you have, you have to go with the flow. You have of course an outcome that is very prescribed that you want your patient to be well and healthy, but you also take cues based on what's happening with that individual and what what kind of skills and resources you have around you and if somebody um, wants to say something or even does a non-verbal uh or tonal like uh, you know any sound any cue that you get will be a cue that you will then stop and think not literally stop but it will go in into your peripheral attention scanning and playing a musical instrument in the team or listening to music or listening to nature, exploring nature, all of that, you're reading and leaving of the cues around you. And the same goes for art, appreciation of art. So all of that is training. Yeah. It's like training in the wild, naturalistic training. And I, it, it's, it speaks to me of being, developing your own individual skills to then be able to integrate into any environment. But there's a fundamental difference here, and I wonder if you can comment on this, between surgical teams or operating theatre teams and astronaut crew, in that the crew are very fixed. So, so they train together as four or six, and they're very fixed and cohesive, whereas the surgical team can sometimes assemble on, on the day. And you might know the people you work with, but you don't work with them every day. Um, people can swap in and out of the team during the the operation and so it's quite um, it's much more flexible and fixed and I, there's a lot of debate about whether that's good or bad or has some benefit or some gaps and I wonder if if you've got any thoughts on fixed versus flexible teams. So that's a good comparison I would say that astronauts spend in that team probably five percent on average you know out of their entire career when they're in space the majority of their career is on, on Earth. And on Earth, they are constantly interacting with people they don't know. <laughs> uh, 
like um, every couple of months, they could have a new trainer, they could have interacting with new engineering team, they will have to blend in, they will have to adapt to what the people are saying, they will have to work in mission control, they will have to work in Europe in mission control, in US, um, they will, so all their work throughout their career is actually continuously shifting with people that they have to blend in. And um, so I agree that once they're in space, they've got a fixed team, but it's only for six months. Well, currently the missions last for six months. Before it used to be for 10 days during shuttle flights or, you know, a couple of weeks. So in that regard, I think there is similarity to what, surgeons experience although they don't do uh, like a mission you know your mission in in theater is for the duration of that surgery or when you're preparing for that surgery and you're also interacting with multitude of the personnel so I think there's similarities right there because that short period of time in their entire lifetime career which could happen only once they will be working in a small team apart from that they're immersed and might even come together at the very last part of training as a team before they go up to a flight. They don't have to have joint training. In fact, they do come from their own personal training expertise, and then they joint in very, sometimes in quite short notice. Right, so having some portable team skills is really what astronauts do as well. As well. This ability to work across teams, different boundaries, that's interesting. I think that's what is most fascinating about about the surgical teams that we work with is the multitude. It's almost like a multi-team system, and especially at the boundaries where you have teams and teams working together. For example, in a in a hybrid suite or in transplant, I think that's particularly fascinating um, because the the astronaut crews would have to um work when they're in operationally they'd have to work and communicate with other teams mission control and other teams right yes that's exactly it is that, that there's a continuous flow and they travel all the time their family travels all the time um during their mission training they hardly see their family as well which uh, is difficult so generally the space agencies try to move the family so that they don't stay apart for several months at a time because they would be on intensive training in Japan, for example, or in Canada or in Russia or in uh, in US. And they will be um, um, meeting, you know, three to six months at a time with completely different people. And not only that they have to move their work team, they move their family. So they have an entirely social uh, change as well, which is quite could be challenging and i do know that surgeons also do travel um, to other hospitals and um, stay away from family i guess or go on shorter um, to gain different types of expertise to other countries even this is a lot of demand on on the individuals um and i wonder what what other challenges um astronaut crews have i mean what's what scenarios if there are any medical or technical scenarios do you think that they find most challenging to deal with operationally? Well, 
I guess like in surgery, um, astronauts always have on their back of their mind that something can go wrong quite quickly. And it's about having that at the back of your mind. And for them, it's their life. Their life is um, at stake. And they are fully aware of the implications on the rest of the mission and the crew. Yeah. I guess it's that's, slightly different to surgery. Well, that's really interesting. There are lots of parallels in what you've said with surgical training and moving around and and that surgeons are only in the operating room about a fifth of their time. Uh, you know, you think of surgeons as being in the operating room, but most of it is about um, uh, clinics and office even and ward rounds and so on. Um, but what we don't do is, like pilots and astronauts, we don't climb onto the operating table and, and face <laughs> uh, injury or death. And we might face a... a moral or emotional injury when things go wrong but but we don't put ourselves onto the operating table with the patient i guess that's the difference well that's quite intense though i think your responsibility yeah. that you take on and that emotional aspect and moral dilemma is must be yeah. so uh, heavy uh, it, it is there. I mean, the, uh, the patient comes first, obviously, but uh, yeah, some people talk about a uh, uh, sort of um, second casualty phenomenon uh, when there are complications. And on that theme of of stressors, I, I wanted to ask you a bit, we've, we've maybe got 10, maybe 15 minutes left, so I wanted to ask you a bit yeah, about um, fatigue. Um, uh, so you've been working with miners in America and Alaska, and uh, you've been looking at fatigue. What can you tell us you've been learning about fatigue that would help us? So we've developed the methodology with um, Mark Hackvale, my colleague at uh, UCL, who's a linguistic um, expert and voice anal uh, analysis. Um, um, sorry, I'll say that again. So. We have been working on voice analysis with uh, Mark Hackville, who works on voice analysis um, with uh, with me for several years now. We've been working for the European Space Agency to develop non-invasive method of capturing people's uh, physiological state without putting something on them, because the astronauts prefer not to be studied or investigated. Right. And so the team on the ground is always looking for ways, how do we monitor them without being intrusive? And monitoring voice, you're not monitoring content, um, and also voice produced by muscles, and muscles are representative of how we physiologically feel. And as a result, we're able to build models on saying when the person is fatigued when their performance would deteriorate. That's the best way, I guess, of putting. Oh, so you can pick up fatigue without the person feeling they're being monitored. Yes. So the concept is that we pick up what the people are speaking and then analyzing that um, without, in, um, without creating additional workload for them. So, for example, if they speak with the ground by mission control or they communicate 
between each other via uh, radio than it is then picked up and sampled. And we then can tell whether this individual is more tired um, than they should be. And then we look back, we could look back at all other data or what they have to do that day. And what we found with the miners is that people were not realistic in their expectation about the level of fatigue, how fatigued they are. So people push themselves. And the only fact that we've introduced this technology improved them looking after their sleep, rest, awake pattern. So by realizing that they should not be working or being awake, you know, more than 17 hours per day, um, and that, that they have to drive for 12 hours and they have this limited bandwidth of attention that then deteriorates and becomes equivalent to illegal alcohol level in the blood after being awake for 17 hours. So this is research done in Australia. And as a result, we know that if they're driving, if they woke up, for, for example, at 7 a.m., or they usually wake up at 4 a.m., <laughs> for the day shift. And then if they've drove, if we're doing a sample at 17 hours uh, and they still got a couple of hours to go, or for example, they have to park their vehicle and then take their own vehicle and drive home. Well, they're certainly not fit or they won't be safe to drive their own vehicle or complete the shift. Yeah. So that's their objective. And 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 what are the effects? Do you have any anything for us and what, what are the effects when they do get to that level of fatigue what is it that goes so we have done a study with um, uh, space professionals and when we were doing um, sampling when we were beginning this work with the european space agency we found that the short-term memory goes as soon as the person gets into the fatigue level that is, for example, not acceptable for driving, as, as there was um, papers published. And what happens is that the person is unable to follow commands that are um, have several pieces of information because the short-term memory lapses. They're unable to follow instructions. Um, so if there's an emergency, they will may, if, if they're lucky, they're able to focus and they will be able to pick up maybe one piece of information. And if you give them several, they might jumble it up. Yeah. And uh, so, for example, in aviation, that would be relevant to, if, uh, because it's all letters and numbers or digits and single letters. And they will jumble up the waypoint and the altitude or the speed. So they would just say it in the wrong way and then remember it in the wrong way or say it in the right way, but enter it in the wrong way into the aircraft. And, but interestingly, then in our small sample that we had, the reaction time remained good throughout the day, even when they were fatigued. I wonder if that's why people feel they're okay. Like, um, because the, you say that the long term memory is, stays okay yes. and the reaction times stay okay but their short-term memory goes to pot and and short-term memory is about working memory isn't it that's your that affects your attention your processing yes right? it's sort of you get this into this narrow 
um, tunnel is if they say tunnel vision or tunnel attention. Uh-huh. So attention tunneling is a term that's used also in uh, human performance. And that's when they're unable to take extra information. Their resources are limited. As you say, their working capacity, the processing capacity of anything. Yeah. So they go back to their old tricks. So yeah. they're un- yeah. in a way. So I guess if a surgeon has got into that condition of, of you know, prolonged uh, duty, maybe coming in to help a colleague when they're not on call is a good thing to do. But then, uh, then, you know, the, the next day, um, I guess you can imagine that standard things that draw in long-term memory might be okay, but doing a, doing an, a, a, what we call a post-receiving ward round, you know, when we're seeing all the new emergency patients, that might be a yes. bad idea. <laughs> yes. Um, well, you are, people also change in their emotional um, reactions and how they interact with other people. So that fatigue has that effect as well when people start interacting differently or mm. they just have no time to process anything. Literally, they are just unable to focus yeah. on um, new information or they have less patience. It appears as they have less patience, which is just they're tired. Sure. Sure. So uh. that you could, if things are going normal and very routine, then... You could you could manage reaction time is similar if it's very routine but if of course there's always a chance that there's a a, a non-routine event or a patient safety type event and then linking back to our previous discussion of of drawing some previous experience of something that happened or identifying the patterns early enough that could be um constrained by fatigue yes so yeah, so I agree with you. So this aspect of considering routine is that they might not be picking up new cues because they're unable to. And sometimes, as you know, in the CRM or core resource management that came from aviation into medicine, it was all about speaking up. Uh, so when the lead person, be it the captain or the chief surgeon uh, or the lead surgeon, and then someone junior, you know, who's maybe more awake <laughs> is seeing that something is not going wrong, but they will not mention it, um, such as that there's a perception that everything is going well or you want it to go well. And that's how you see it, because it's all about filters as well. If you're not expecting it, you won't see it. We know there are many experiments in psychology about that. And that's when you think it's all going well, but you just have no capacity to observe so it's, yeah. and we have not tested that, but it seems to be not just short-term memory, but it's sort of narrow vision, I guess. Yeah, and I- dangerous situation potentially. So you have a, a patterns that have not been identified by the senior person in the operating theater or in any operational environment. A more junior person, perceived to be junior on the hierarchy, is more alert, identifies this speaks up about the problem, but then the senior person is both fatigued, which might also mean that they are more um, irritable or short-tempered potentially because they have less cognitive resource, and then shut down that speaking up, which then starts to create a very cultural moment where then people are less inclined to speak up, less less um, inclined to go be, you know, above, their, above their role. 
And I wonder if that, if then fatigue and culture go together in some way. Absolutely. Um, you've nailed it. You know, we're all human. You know, we, we can, we do our best to be um, as ethical and professional. Um, but then if, if we are tired, we just, you know, we have no capacity and that has to be respected. We all need to recover. And it's, it's the same for every profession. This is this is so important for us, you know. This particularly, you know, the you know the idea that you know not not even routine tasks should should can be done as safely when you're tired, and that we underestimate our own uh, the the effect of our fatigue yeah. um, for whatever reasons. Are some of them good about being trained to to cope in certain situations? But but um, you know it's. So that it's best not to be working fatigued, and when situations arise where you are fatigued, you need to know about it. You know, when we teach the our juniors sur- surgeons, be careful when you're hungry, angry, late, or tired. You know, <laughs> it's about recognizing that in yourself. Um, I don't know if there's any self-monitoring tricks you have. Well, I found that in our experience, so we were working with air traffic controllers as well. Um, in doing this voice analysis trial and the report that we were getting back that people just by participating in the trial they became more aware so by people consciously doing this monitoring you know you have all this wristwatch and monitors health uh, apps by just watching um, or log logging your sleep because they do this in the app so how long they sleep and they are aware that once 17 hours passed after being awake they know that this is the time when they should be resting and shouldn't be doing safety critical tasks that brought attention to them it's like you know this is um, this is of course general right this is a general um, research but and we all have different capacity and extension but just by logging your sleep, you became aware on how much you actually sleep. And then if you look across the month on how many days you had six hours, for example, and do you sleep six hours all your life? Or maybe people can't fall asleep easily. So they log, for example, they're going to bed at 12, but they're actually falling asleep past two o'clock and they have to wake at seven, let's say, or at some odd time for, um, um, you know, non-ordinary kind of not a day shift yeah just that awareness of summing up how many hours you slept um in that last week and how many nights were cut short how well you fell asleep brings it all up and then you start saying oh, okay maybe that's why i'm a little bit short you know on patience or can't find time for something that you usually have time awareness of the data is is at an all-time high now, or the possibility to gather those data with sensors and things on our phone and on our wrists and and so on. I think that there's definitely the potential. I think most people, would, including myself, would be shocked to see some of the some of the quantitative data on our attention or sleep or or fatigue. And it probably, as you mentioned, Ken, it probably is completely at odds with how we think uh, we are performing. I know that we are also short of time now because we're having such a good discussion. This is this is getting exciting, and I wonder if we've got time for a final thought or final question, Ia. And uh, do you have any other insights to share from your work, thinking about mid-career professionals and how how we can be better and have more insight and have a 
have an extended and and productive and and performance laden career. Something that I have um, watched the professionals uh, in extreme environments do is that they are very have a strong bias for analyzing themselves and it is helpful sometimes but sometimes stepping back out of um, you know critical analysis of yourself and becoming an observer and watching yourself of what is happening slightly externally being exposed and watching how you react which is again the capacity you can only have when you're not tired because when you're tired you just have very little space but watching what effect it has on others and um i mean before there was a you know very common technique if people get emotional that they need to count <laughs> or now there is more suggestion to to breathe to to do deeper breathing and also count your breaths and um, observe your breath. So about observing your environment and seeing, really looking at what that person in front of you trying to say and looking for all the cues and almost like going through the list. What is their facial expression? What is their body language? How are they standing? Are they sloping? What's their dress like? And this is something that as surgeons, I bet you would do anyway, or as medical professionals, or uh, because you're just trained to pick up all those cues because they might give you a clue into the condition or how well they're able to look after themselves. But when you are analyzing that and you are giving yourself a mental space without being judgmental, then that might give you this attention that we were talking about before, where you are learning to be more attentive to things that you haven't paid attention before. And that suddenly expands your resources for one. And you are also able to pick up cues that you were unable to pick up before. So it's learning to be an observer and stepping out and watching kind of having a view of the situation slightly removed from you. It's almost like you're raising above and watching what's happening inside you. If it's a stormy weather or if it's quite pleasant, you know, how could you come back to that state? So all the techniques about relaxation is about body memory, right? And then when you just think about that technique, your body starts to relax because it knows that it's, you can, you're going to go into it. So, for example, <laughs> astronauts in space can't fall asleep at the beginning because they don't have a pressure of their body on the bed. So they don't get this feeling of the blanket wrapping them with weight or they can't put the pillow um, or the head on the pillow and feel that relaxation, melting sensation. So they strap themselves in order to feel the pressure. And this is the kind of idea by you learning how do you feel, how does your all of your senses feel when you are totally awake or totally relaxed or enjoying yourself. And then by memorizing that state of how every part of you from hearing to smell to sensations to anywhere in your body, by 
paying attention, you are then able to come back to that state just by thinking about how did I feel when I was happy? <laughs> or, okay, I feel that tension rising. What can I do about it? And we are so externally biased in, in our work because we have to, you know, watch others and observe others and react to others and, you know, fit the schedule follow the procedure, we forget on what's happening internally and what that observer can pick up in the environment and well, training a, them. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful place to leave it. You're, you're really saying we need to try and summon the inner psychologist in ourselves to use our senses for, for reflection and to, and to be better and notice our impact on the world. And I think that's, that's a brilliant message. It's been a real pleasure talking Thank to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great, Ia. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. I hope we can entice you back to Inverness for some more collaborative research. I would love to do that. It was an <laughs> absolute wonder for me, you know, to watch you at, in your art. <laughs> yeah. uh, and what a helpful discussion today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Ken. 